0: Here we go. Well, good morning Advent Hope and happy Sabbath to all of you. It's always a special treat to come back to Loma Linda, and I spent 10 years of my life in this place, but I've been gone long enough now that I've been gone longer than I was here. So the Advent Hope still has a very special place in my heart, and it's so good to see many familiar faces and to be with you this Sabbath. I kind of chuckled at the reaction to having the son that I have now. You know, the appearances that we kept trying until we had a boy—that's uh, not what happened. It was a surprise to all, and we're, we're, we're grateful for God's blessing in that regard. I'm just going to ask the Lord to be with us and we will begin this message. Father, we thank you for this beautiful Sabbath day. We thank you that we can worship you and come together. And I just pray that as, as I speak this morning, that you would guide my mind and give me the words to speak that would be just what each one of us needs this morning as we prepare for the soon return of Jesus. We thank you for the blessing to be here today, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The title for the message this morning is Eyewitnesses of His Majesty, and I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be starting in verse 16 of 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Here the apostle Peter says, "...for we have not followed cunningly devised fables." When we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. The Apostle Peter is giving a message to the Christian church saying, we are not following cunningly devised fables. Sometimes you get the idea when you talk to some people who are out there, that the Bible and Christianity and even the Adventist faith is just a cunningly devised fable, a neatly put together set of ideas, as atheists like to say, religion is the opium of the masses. And yet the Apostle Peter could say, we're not following cunningly devised fables. He could say, I can tell you as an eyewitness that I saw with mine own eyes and I heard with mine own ears the voice of the Father and I saw Jesus transfigured. I can tell you with certainty that what we believe is true. Now this story of... The Transfiguration, which obviously made such an indelible impression upon Peter that he was writing about it decades later, is a story that is worth reflecting upon for a few minutes this morning. And when we look at this story and we make some applications from this story, we will see just how valuable and how powerful that story is for us today. So I want you to go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And the setting for the Mount of Transfiguration, when you look at verse 13 leading into the story of the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and of course he's dealing with the fact that the Jewish nation has not accepted him to be the Messiah. And Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And that's in verse 14, Peter responds. Well, the disciples respond, some say that you're John the Baptist, some say that you're Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So Peter gets off to a good start here. And Jesus commends him and says, Flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my Father which is in heaven. Now, you know, we could learn from this story because how often have we received a compliment from someone and then we turn right around and step right into it in our very next breath? That's what happens to Peter. Because as the story proceeds, Jesus then goes on to say, Okay that's great, you understand that I'm the Messiah, now I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and be put to death by the the leaders of this nation. And Peter's response is, be far from you, Jesus, this will not happen. And Jesus goes from saying, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven, to saying to him, get thee behind me, Satan. That's kind of a stinging rebuke after he feels like, wow, God the Father has given this thought to me, and then he, Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. As the story continues, Jesus goes on to say in Matthew sixteen twenty eight, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And very clearly what Jesus is referring to is his transfiguration, which as we come into Matthew 17, we see takes place six days later. So six days after Jesus says there will be some of you who are standing here that will not taste death till you see me coming in my kingdom, six days later we see the story. So Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, with him to this mountain. So that's why Peter is the one who writes about this later on in Second Peter chapter 1. And you can see this story in the Gospels of Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. And just to summarize what happens, they climb to the top of this mountain. They're tired when they get to the top of the mountain. It's taken some effort to get to the top. And when they get to the top, they all enter into a season of prayer. Now, the disciples did not immediately fall asleep. They engaged in a season of prayer with Christ. They understood that this was a special moment where they had been set apart from the other nine. Jesus had picked them to have a special moment. Now, they did not know what was about to happen, but they knew that it was a special moment. So they are in a season of prayer with Jesus, but they're tired because they've hiked up this mountain at the end of the day. And predictably, they all fall asleep. Sometime after they fall asleep after Jesus has continued in hours of prayer, they are suddenly awakened. Now, I have to tell you, one of the scenes from Scripture that I definitely want to see when I get to heaven is this scene. Because this isn't just any old story that happens to Jesus and the disciples as part of his three and a half years of ministry. Yes, every story about Jesus in the Bible is special. But this story is especially significant. Because Jesus says... There will there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So this is a picture of Jesus, of what he will be like when he comes in his kingdom. So this is a very significant moment in the ministry of Jesus. And when the disciples wake up, they don't see the same Jesus that they saw when they fell asleep they see Jesus transfigured in a glorified state the way he will appear in heaven. And not only do they see Jesus glorified as he will appear when he comes in his kingdom and as he appears in heaven, they see Jesus standing with Moses and Elijah. Now, just minutes, hours earlier... The disciples are, you know, they are with who they believe to be the Messiah. And they're having what seems to be an ordinary earthly experience climbing up a mountain. And now they wake up from sleep and they see the heavenly kingdom. It's a powerful moment. And it's a moment that I want to see when we get to heaven. Now, it's interesting that Moses and Elijah were the two glorified human beings who were called from heaven to come down and minister to Jesus. Notice what Ellen White says in Desire of Ages 425. These men chosen above every angel around the throne had come to commune with Jesus concerning the scenes of his suffering and to comfort him with the assurance of the sympathy of heaven. The hope of the world, the salvation of every human being was the burden of their interview. Now it's interesting that's from desire of ages if you read that whole chapter there's not a lot of detail about what moses and elijah said to jesus and the bible doesn't give us much detail either we just see that moses and elijah are there and that moses and elijah speak to jesus but we can use some sanctified imagination to think about what might have been said in that conversation we're told that the hope of the world, the salvation of every human being, was the burden of their interview. But think about this. Before the cross, everybody who accepted the sacrifice of Christ for their sins did so by faith. Because Jesus had not yet died as the Lamb of God, as the sacrifice of the sins for the whole world. So when Moses and Elijah come down to the Mount of Transfiguration, they have some personal motivation. Have you ever thought about what would have happened to Moses, Elijah, and Enoch if Jesus had not gone through Gethsemane and Calvary? Their sins, which... As the Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we can point to some sins of Moses and Elijah. Now, Enoch, there's no record, but the Bible says all have sinned. Moses, he killed an Egyptian. Moses lost his temper and struck the rock in anger just before entering the promised land. Elijah, after his Mount Carmel experience, then gets discouraged and runs off into the wilderness. And what could have been an even greater revival in Israel was stunted by him fleeing away when Jezebel said, I'm going to put you to death. But obviously, that was not the end of the story of Moses when he lost his temper. That was not the end of the story of Elijah when he fled into the wilderness. But they needed the blood of Jesus, just like we do. Without the blood of Jesus, they would be lost. But notice that Moses and Elijah were not told that they specifically... Ask Jesus to save them personally. What we're told is that they reminded Jesus that his mission involved the salvation of every human being. So one of the things that I'm going to do when I get to heaven, in addition to thanking the Lord, is to thank Moses and Elijah for their role on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were chosen for this special task. And I do want to hear exactly what they said. When we get to heaven, I want to know what did they say exactly to Jesus? What did Jesus say to them? Did he have any questions for them? Now, when you look at Mark chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, Luke 9, verse 33, Peter, James, and John wake up. Now, this is the same Peter who... Says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, but then he's the one who says, You're not going to go to Jerusalem and die, Jesus. Now he wakes up from his sleep and they see this glorious scene of Jesus transfigured. This is Jesus who just moments earlier looks like an ordinary human being, the one that the Jewish leaders are not accepting as the Messiah. They, Peter, James, and John, believe he's the Messiah, but they know that the Jewish nation has not accepted him and they look look upon Jesus as they wake up and they're like wow he really is who we thought he was what an amazing moment we really are following the messiah and you know there's so many different things peter could have said but what peter says here is hey it's great that we're all here together Why don't we build tabernacles, one for Moses and Elijah and Jesus? Wouldn't that be a good idea? It's like, okay, so how are you going to do that, Peter? You know, I'm sure, look, Peter, James, and John, after the cross and after they were filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm sure there were many times they were like, why didn't we ask Moses and Elijah, hey, what advice do you have for us? How can we be better disciples for Jesus? What would the Father have? What's the message from the Father to you, to us, that we should think about as we continue to follow Jesus here on this earth? I'm sure they thought of that many times after Jesus ascended to heaven. And you know, a lot of times we miss out on opportunities for God speaking to us because You know, how many of us in certain sacred moments, rather than listening to the voice of God, we just start speaking mindlessly? You know, sometimes I'm around people that when things get silent, it feels awkward and then they think they have to say something. And sometimes the best thing to do is to just stay quiet. I mean, Peter would have been possibly or probably better served to have just not said anything to say what he said. Because after Peter says, hey, why don't we build three tabernacles? Then the ground starts shaking and then the father speaks and they think they're going to die and they fall to the ground and cover their faces. Now, there's another statement from Ellen White in Desire of Ages 425. Though being overcome, or through, excuse me, through being overcome with sleep, the disciples heard little of what passed between Christ and the heavenly messengers. Failing to watch and pray, they had not received that which God desired to give them a knowledge of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Now, you think about what happens after this. I mean, when Jesus dies on the cross. You know, Peter was the one saying, this isn't going to happen to you. Like when Jesus died on the cross, the disciples are living in the moment as if they never could have dreamed that this could have happened to Jesus. And Moses and Elijah were coming down from heaven to help the disciples understand, here's what's going to happen to your master, but don't lose hope. But because they had fallen asleep, they missed out on this. But then they also missed out on the glory that would follow. So they were going to be told, Jesus is going to die, but just wait till after. It's going to get a lot better. They lost the blessing that might have been theirs through sharing his self-sacrifice. Slow of heart to believe were these disciples little appreciative of the treasure with which heaven sought to enrich them. Now if we stopped right there, would be like, oh man. But it's not all lost here. The next sentence says, yet they received great light. So it was not all lost on Peter, James, and John, this amazing experience that they have on the Mount of Transfiguration. The quote goes on to say they were assured that all heaven knew of the sin of the Jewish nation in rejecting Christ. You know, here they are three and a half years. It's like, why isn't the Jewish nation accepting Christ? If he's the Messiah, wouldn't they be accepting him? Now they're hearing straight from heaven, Moses and Elijah. This really is the Son of God. This really is the Messiah. And not only Moses and Elijah saying it, they hear the voice of the Father saying so. They were given a clearer insight into the work of the Redeemer. They saw with their eyes and heard with their ears things that were beyond the comprehension of man. They were eyewitnesses of his majesty, and they realized that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, to whom patriarchs and prophets had witnessed, and that he was recognized as such by the heavenly universe. What an amazing moment. Yes, they get scared when the earth starts to shake and the voice of the Father speaks. But at the end of the day, they knew that Jesus really is the Messiah. One hundred percent. They were with him. They saw him transfigured. They saw him glorified. They saw Moses and Elijah glorified. They heard the voice of the Father and they knew that Jesus really is the Messiah. Now, there's some interesting applications that can be made from this story. Moses and Elijah. You know, Jesus says that there will be some of you standing here who will not taste death till you see the Son of Man coming in your kingdom. So what is it about the Mount of Transfiguration, as we call it, where Jesus is transfigured and the glorified forms of Moses and Elijah appear. And this is a representation of Jesus coming in his glory. I'm sure many of you have heard of this before, but think about this. Moses died and he was the first to was also resurrected, which is why Romans chapter 5 says that death reigned from Adam to Moses. Up until Moses, there had never been a resurrection. So when Moses is resurrected, and that's why... In, Jude, in the book of Jude verse 9, the devil contends with Christ over the body of Moses because up until the time that Moses is resurrected, Satan could glibly say, everybody that has died is in the grave and they're never coming up because they all have sinned and the penalty of sin is death. They're never coming out. And when Jesus comes to resurrect Moses, Satan says to Jesus, on what authority can you raise Moses from the dead? Let me show you the record of sin in his life. And you say that the wages of sin is death. He can't come out of the grave. You haven't even paid the penalty for it that you talk about. And Jesus just simply responds, the Lord rebuke thee. And Moses is resurrected. Moses is the first of the faithful saints who have trusted in the Lord through history that is resurrected after dying. Elijah is translated without saying death. Death, Not the first one. Enoch was the first one who was translated without saying death. Elijah is the second. But Moses and Elijah are chosen to be representatives of, of human beings that are saved when Christ comes in his kingdom and takes those who are faithful back to heaven. Because when Christ comes in his kingdom and takes the faithful back to heaven, there will be in heaven, by and large, those who have died and been resurrected. And there will also be a special group of people like Enoch, and Elijah, who never taste death. We call them the 144,000. And so when... the the disciples wake up from their sleep and they see Jesus, Moses, and Elijah in a glorified state. They see a miniature representation of what the heavenly kingdom is going to be like when the redeemed are in heaven with Christ, where those who have died in the Lord are resurrected. Those who are faithful at the end of the world, who are translated and who do not see death, the 144,000, they will all be together with Christ in heaven. And so the Mount of Transfiguration was a Foretastes of what the results of Christ's sacrifice would be shortly after that time. So this is a miniature representation of God's kingdom. You know, I'm thankful that we have this hope because I'm sure every single one of you here today has in some way been touched by death. You know, I can speak for myself. My father passed away about 20 years ago. I look forward to the time when he will come up out of that grave. You know, I'm looking at some of you right now who I'm friends with, who I know have been touched by death in the not-too-distant past. The fact that Moses came to Christ as a representative on the Mount of Transfiguration is... Just another way of God giving us a guarantee that the dead who die in the Lord will not stay in the grave forever. We have this hope. We also have this hope that there will be a people alive at the end of the world who, because of their faith in Jesus... And because of the power of how he works in their lives, they will be faithful until the end and they will never taste death just like Elijah. And, you know, I believed in that very strongly 20 years ago when I attended here at Advent Hope. And my belief in that has not grown dim through the years. But I do realize I'm a little bit older now than I was 20 years ago. But I do believe with all of my heart, that just as Elijah was translated without seeing death, there's going to be a people at the end of the world who, through the power of God, God vindicates his name through this faithful people, the 144,000. It's interesting as well, Moses and Elijah, yes, they represent those, Moses represents those who die in the Lord and are resurrected. Elijah represents those who are faithful in the Lord and are translated without seeing death. But Moses and Elijah represent even more than that. Moses was the leader of God's people to whom God gave the law on the tables of stone. And, of course, we know the story when Moses first received the tables of stone and he came back into the camp because of the apostasy, he threw the tables of stone to the ground. But then he received them again a second time. And Moses is understood to be the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of Scripture, which contain the Ten Commandments in Exodus and repeated again in Deuteronomy. And so Moses is largely understood through Scripture to be a representative of the law. Yes, he was also a prophet, he was a poet, he was a leader, he was a military general. He had all sorts of different things, and yet he's described as the meekest man on the earth. You know, If some of us had 10% of Moses' accomplishments, we would be going around saying, man, have you seen what I can do? I mean, Moses was a humble and meek man. He understood that his accomplishments and gifts came from God. But he represents the law. And Elijah is a clear symbol of one of the greatest prophets to the nation of Israel. You think about Elijah. He comes out of nowhere, the Chishbite comes to the king and out of nowhere just says there will be no dew nor rain these years but according to my word. That's easier said than done to do such a thing. What Elijah stood for was very difficult. He reaches a point where he says, I, Lord, alone am left. And the Lord says, no, look, I've reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. But you know what? Elijah couldn't see them. Those 7,000 were silent witnesses. And sometimes we need more Elijahs in the church who aren't just the 7,000, but who are more like Elijah, who will speak up for the prophetic message that God has given us. And you know, Elijah was given that prophetic authority from God because he was crying to the Lord and praying, Lord, how long is this idolatry going to continue among your people? So when you look at Moses and Elijah, we think about some of their characteristics. You know, we could think of some more things. I mean, Moses, he was the leader of Israel from Egypt to Canaan. And at, with the apostasy of Israel at one point, God offers to Moses to make of Moses a great nation and to destroy Israel. But Moses shows the heart of God and says, God, if you do that, your name will be profaned or dishonored among the heathen. Moses was more concerned about the honor of God's name and he loved the people of Israel despite their apostasy And God says, if you do such a thing, your name will be profaned. Elijah stood alone for God on Mount Carmel. When the nation of Israel was too afraid to acknowledge the God of Israel as the true God, he fearlessly stood on the Lord's side. And he fearlessly rebuked sin when Ahab said to him, are you the one who has troubled Israel? Um, Elijah responds and says, it's not me that's troubled Israel, but you and your father's house and that you have forsaken the Lord and worshiped Baal. But yet... Despite their great accomplishments, as I mentioned, and of course that was through the power of God, they made their mistakes. Moses struck the rock in anger just before entering the promised land. Elijah fled to the desert in discouragement, and yet they received the grace of God after those mistakes, and Moses... Upon his death, shortly after he resurrected and taken to heaven, Elijah, despite the fact that he fled in discouragement, was called of God to go back and to do a work, and then he was translated without seeing death. So here, standing on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah are offering encouragement to Christ. What a high honor. Now, you know, Moses had prayed to the Lord, Lord, please let me go over into that promised land. And the Lord said, don't speak to me about this anymore. But you know what? Here we are all these centuries later, and now that promise to Moses is fulfilled. Moses finally comes to the promised land. Now, of course, by now he's been in the heavenly kingdom. But he's called to a greater purpose because now he's ministering to Christ just before his sacrifice. Moses and Elijah, as fellow humans, were acutely aware of the trials that come through serving God in the work to save man. They were co-laborers with Christ. They loved the Lord and they loved God's people, and they dedicated their lives to the salvation of God's people. And that's why they were then called upon to minister to Christ, to remind him, we've worked with you in the past. Moses could remind the Lord, remember all the years that You gave me the grace to be the leader of your people. And Elijah could remind Christ, remember of the time that I was your prophet to the nation of Israel and of how your mighty wonders were manifested and people were saved who otherwise would not have been. And now, Lord, we're calling upon you to go through this major challenge that you are facing. But the whole world is depending upon what you do. And Moses and Elijah could say these things to Christ because they had given everything in their lives to being faithful to him. So now they're called upon to minister to Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. These were the best possible representatives that could have come to minister to Christ just before his death. And you know, if the disciples hadn't been sleeping they would have received some instruction from Moses and Elijah as well. You know, it's interesting. You read the account in Scripture. They walk back down the mountain. They get to the base of the mountain. Ellen White says that they were so awestruck that hardly anybody said anything. And they get to the base of the mountain. And Jesus says to them, Don't say anything about this vision to anybody. Until after, you, until after I raise from the dead. And you know, just how slow they are, they're like, what's he, what's he talking about after he's raised from the dead? Come on, guys, wake up. You know how hard that would be to not tell that story to anybody? I mean, you know, for lack of a better illustration, let's just say that you were well, I'll just use myself as an illustration. Let's just say I was traveling somewhere, and I was in an airport somewhere, maybe making a, a, a change of planes in an airport somewhere, and some official comes up to me and pulls me aside and says, um, some, somebody very important needs to speak with you. And I pulled aside, and I come into this room, and they open the door, and inside this room is the President of the United States. Now, hang on, I know some of you don't like the President of the United States, that's not my point. Let's just imagine this is a President that you really like. Now, some of you may like the President, and I'm not here to say one yay or nay about any politician. But let's just say, so here I'm called in to see the President of the United States. And the President of the United States says, look, Norman, I just want to say, I am so thankful for the work that you are doing as a Seventh-day Adventist. And I just want you to know that as long as I'm the president, you are protected with everything that you do. We are covering you. You will have security, protection, and support to do whatever you need to do to give the three angels messages. I'm a, a silent believer. I'm a silent witness to your faith. But I can't say anything more than that. But I'm meeting you secretly to let you know you are going to be covered the rest of your life to do the work that you're doing but there's one condition to this thing you can't tell anybody you can't even tell your wife i mean i'd walk out of that room Man, i just got to see the president and i can't tell anybody I mean, imagine Peter, James, and John. They've seen Moses and Elijah transfigured. They've seen Christ in a glorified, transfigured state. And they heard the voice of God the Father. And now they can't tell anybody. Of course, they got to tell everybody about it after Jesus was raised from the dead. And you know, scripture says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word should be, shall be established. Peter, James, and John could say, hey guys, we've got a story to tell you. I don't know why we didn't think about this when Jesus died, but we're, we're with it now. You remember that time? And then they could tell the other disciples and everybody else exactly what they saw. Let's go back to Second Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. When you look at these verses in the context of what Peter is saying, it starts to make more sense when you think about the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His Majesty. Now, I want to make a challenge to all of you here today. As believers in Jesus, as followers of His teachings, as believers in the second coming of Christ, we are not following cunningly devised fables. This is not just some nice little fairy tale to make us feel good about ourselves as we live here on planet earth, and yet it will all come to naught. No, this is for real. We are not following cunningly devised fables. When we made known unto you the power and coming over Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter could say, I saw it. And he goes on to say, he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So Peter said, I was an eyewitness and I heard. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. But you might be thinking, but wait a minute. I have no reasonable expectation to to think that I will ever see something like Peter, James, and John saw before the coming of Jesus? Well, let me tell you something. First of all, we do have the promise of his coming. That's going to be even better than what the three disciples saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. But Peter knows what you're thinking too. And now he picks it up in verse 19. Notice what he says in verse 19. We have also... A more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart. This is what Peter is saying. You may not get to see what I saw or hear what I heard, but I have something that's even better. He uses the term more sure, it's even better. It's the more sure word of prophecy. Now, obviously, I I realize I'm a bit biased. I love the study of prophecy. I've written a book on Daniel. I've written a book on Revelation, and I love prophecy. And I obviously agree with the sentiment, the more sure word of prophecy. And I want to say this. You know, sometimes I see Adventists who study prophecy in such a way that Christ is left out of the study of prophecy. And I've seen some weird stuff come out of those kind of studies so that people start to set dates for Sunday laws and second coming or setting dates for like I live near Nashville, Tennessee, and there was a group that was setting a date for Nashville to be destroyed by a nuclear bomb. And I mean, it was going to be the day before my birthday, and I was like, wow, happy birthday to me. Um, and the day came and went. So there's some weird, strange stuff that, that gets out there when people focus on prophecy disconnected from Christ. On the, same, or on the other hand, because there's people who go too far one way, the way they push prophecy without Christ, There's also a tendency in Adventism to say, we don't need prophecy, we just need Jesus. But I want to tell you that God has given us the more sure word of prophecy, the prophetic message, that when Christ is at the heart of the prophetic message, we are become the most relevant people on this earth, not because we in and of ourselves are better than anybody else, but because we then have the very message that God has given us to give to the rest of the world, and it's called the three angels' messages. This is the more sure word of prophecy. It's not the more sure word of conspiracies, and we're sometimes good at that too, It's the more sure word of prophecy where Christ is at the heart of the message for this time. And what Peter is saying, I saw with mine own eyes, I heard with mine own ears, but I'm telling you, there is a more sure word of prophecy for us today. So when we look at this, the more sure word of prophecy, we think about Moses and Elijah standing on the Mount of Transfiguration, symbolizing the law and the prophets. It's interesting, the law and the prophets were the very thing that the Jewish nation rejected time and again down through history. They would reject the law and then they exceeded the requirements of the law by the time Jesus came. They rejected the prophets from the time of Moses all the way to the time that Stephen was stoned. Which of the prophets did they not put to death or reject? And so when Moses and Elijah are standing on the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ, it's a implicit rebuke to the Jewish nation because what Christ is saying is he stands with Moses and Elijah. He's the Messiah. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And what God is saying is you as a nation have rejected all of this. You've rejected the Messiah. You've rejected the law. You've rejected the prophets. And at the end of time, what God is saying is, the Messiah is coming again. Jesus is coming again. And he will have a people who exalt the law and the prophets. And if you want to stand with Christ in heaven, you will accept Christ. And you will accept all the messages that Christ gives us, including the messages contained within the law and the prophets. Now... Lest ye think this is just some interesting thought, go to Revelation 12:17. In Revelation 12, 17, we see this great controversy warfare. I talked about this a little bit last night, where the war starts in heaven, it comes to this earth. Christ is birthed of the church, and then it's caught up to God into his throne. The woman flees into the wilderness, and then at the very end of time, Satan, who is the dragon, is enraged with the woman who represents God's church. And he's enraged with the woman because it has two identifying characteristics that we also see on the Mount of Transfiguration. This church keeps the commandments of God, and has the testimony of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 19.10 tells us that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And when you go to Revelation 22, it becomes very clear that the spirit of prophecy means that you have a prophet in your midst. So at the end of time, God has a people who keep the commandments of God, And they have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy, which is the prophetic gift. And so God is saying, just as I worked through ancient Israel where I gave them the law and I gave them messages through the prophets and then the Messiah came, God raises up a people at the end of the world who he gives the law and he sends the prophets and he gives us a special prophetic messenger at the end of time. And he says, just as if you followed that in ancient times, if you do that at the end of the world, you will be my people, my remnant people at the end of time. So the mount of transfiguration gives us some interesting insight. You know, it's interesting Moses and Elijah were on the mount of transfiguration as we've talked about. And the saints from God's last day church will stand with the lamb on mount Zion. Those who die in the faith of the third angel's message will be resurrected. We call this the special resurrection. And they will be resurrected like Moses. And the 144,000 will be translated without seeing death. Now, you know, Moses and Elijah came to encourage Jesus just before he went through Gethsemane and Calvary. We as God's last day church are facing the final crisis of this earth's history. Moses and Elijah will not be appearing to us personally like they did to Christ, but we have something even better, as Scripture says. We have the more sure word of prophecy. And as we continue in Second Peter chapter one, it continues to say in verse Nineteen. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart. Verse 20 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time of the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Listen, the prophetic message that we have at the end of time is not of private interpretation. So, Like I say, be wary of those prophetic messages where it's like, we have a new and fresh take on Revelation 13. It's not going to be what we've always thought Revelation 13 is going to be. We've actually discovered a new method that helps us to know what's actually going to happen. There's not going to be a Sunday law. It's actually all going to just come from the left and they're going to take over the world and all that. No, no, no. Don't follow private interpretations. We have a more sure word of Prophecy. And it shines light into the darkness of this world. And Christ is the very one who gives us this prophetic message. Because he loves us, he shows us what is coming. I said this last night, I'll say it to those of you who are here today. There are people who say, oh, I don't need to worry about what's coming. I just need to know who's coming. And you know what's going to happen when you don't know what's coming? You'll be deceived by the who that comes. Because you don't know the more sure word of prophecy and you don't don't follow what Jesus says when he says there will be false Christs and false prophets that will arise and deceive many. Anybody who goes against the more sure word of prophecy and gives you a false interpretation of the prophetic message is a false Christ and a false prophet. Don't just follow anybody because they claim to be a Seventh-day Adventist and they can put up 50 quotes on the screen to make it look like they know what they're talking about. And I've said this before too. If it takes 50 quotes from Ellen White and 100 verses and you come to the end of the study and it's just as confusing as when you started, you're probably on the wrong track. There's the more sure word of prophecy that we have as a people with a prophetic message that's not of private interpretation. And while Christ and Moses and Elijah may not appear to us personally, Christ speaks to us directly through the more sure word of prophecy. Amen. And when we face the final crisis of earth's history, we can by faith claim the promises of Scripture knowing that Christ has foretold everything that's going to happen to us. We will lean on our relationship with the Lord, and we will lean on our faith in the messages that Scripture has given to us. I'm thankful for the more sure word of prophecy. I'm thankful for the books of Daniel and Revelation. They fit together like a hand in a glove. They were written several hundred years apart, and yet they are harmonious. I'm thankful for the message of the 2300 days of how the 490 years are cut off and Jesus comes right on time as the Messiah. And right on time, he goes into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary in 1844. I'm thankful for the prophetic message that God would raise up a people in the judgment hour who would fear God and give glory to him in the hour of his judgment. And that those who respond to the everlasting gospel would have the righteousness of God revealed in their lives so that someday soon, God will have a people who keep The commandments of God, the patience of the saints, and the faith of Jesus. That's the more sure word of prophecy. I'm thankful for all of these things. Now, as I wrap this up, think about this amazing picture that takes place. Jesus meets with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's glorified for a moment. The scene fades away. He comes back down the mountain. And not long after he faces Gethsemane. And he says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. And we we know that he saw the fate of the whole world in his hands, and he drank the cup, and he went through, and he went through Calvary, and he died on the cross, and he was raised again, and then he ascended to heaven. Forty days later. And think about the scene in heaven. This is a scene that I want to see replayed as well. Jesus is entering into the heavenly gates, and the angel the coast is singing the song of Psalm twenty-four, Lift up your heads, O ye gates be ye lifted up ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And all the angels of God are worshiping him worshiping him. But you know who else was there in that crowd? Moses and Elijah and you know what Moses and Elijah said to Jesus when he came back into the heavenly gates they said Jesus thank you for saving me you saved me they met with him before and he went through the cross because he loved them but you know what he loves you too and when I look at the Mount of Transfiguration, I see a picture of those who die on the Lord who will stand with Jesus in heaven. I see those who will be translated without death who will, will be with Jesus in heaven. And when we get to heaven, we're going to say the same thing. Amen. Thank you for saving me. And the 144,000 will follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. You know, if we're going to follow the Lamb wherever He goes in heaven, we're going to follow Him here on this earth, and I just want to challenge you. Maybe you've had questions about the law and the prophets, but I'm telling you, it's getting late in earth's history to be throwing aside the law and the prophets. Now is the time to say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. You're the Lamb of God who died for me, and you've given me these messages, the law and the prophets, to prepare me to stand with you in heaven. That's what I want, and that's what I need. Amen? Amen. So at this time, we're going to sing our hymn of response. I'm going to call the song service team up, and then we will have a closing prayer. But I'm thankful for this story. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, and how we can someday be with Christ in heaven too. Amen?